This is always one of my favorite platforms to prepare for because the preparation is mostly in listening. The interesting part of the preparation, anyway, for me. It's mostly in listening to what kinds of questions are on your mind. And we have a great variety today. You all are thinking about the biggest questions in life, and you're thinking about very practical questions. How do I make this decision right now? How do I help myself to be a person slightly different than the one I am? I love knowing even more than usual what is going on in your minds, what it is that you're thinking about. And, you know, I was a little worried this time as I, as I got ready for this platform because, you know, I came back from sabbatical and, and was speaking then in two weeks. I came back two weeks ago and didn't have a lot of questions about a week ago. I think I only had two or three. And uh, so I put another call out by email, which apparently many of you received. So we're up to, I think, 17 questions uh, this morning. And so my attempt... It's going to be to move through those with brief answers, partly because I think the questions themselves are so interesting that I want us to hear them all. So you'll hear some of my answers and say, that could be a platform in and of itself, and let me know if you wish it were, and we'll find a time to do it. Um, Perhaps some of them we'll be able to accurately and sufficiently dispose of in 90 seconds. So... I start with a a group of four questions from the same person. What is good in life? No, it's five questions. Oh, he snuck another in there. What is good in life? What are the highest ideals to aspire to and why? How then should we live? What principles should guide our actions based on the above values? How should we show our covenant with our values in the external world? Go. Okay. So these are the biggest questions, right? The person who sent these questions said he was referring back to the questions that the classic philosophers asked, the questions that philosophers continue to ask. And and in many ways, the answer for me is the real beauty of a tradition like ethical culture, a humanistic tradition, what is essentially an existentialist tradition, a tradition where we make our own meaning. We create the answers to many of these questions. We don't, you know, we may be informed by philosophers and those that came before, but our lived experience, our human experience helps to answer those questions. What is good in life? What are the highest ideals? I would say that, I would add for ethical culture, the idea of the insistence on human worth and dignity and the idea of our connection together, that none of us stand alone separate from each other or separate from the world around us. Those are core principles for ethical culture. I think they're at the foundation. But the devil's in the details, isn't it? I really love um, the way that Tolstoy articulated it, and I especially love the way he articulated it in a, it is re-articulated by John Muth in a children's book, it's kind of my level of philosophy, um, called The Three Questions. I recommend it to you. Uh, What it says is um, the most important time is now, the time we have in this moment. The most important person is the one in front of you. And the most important thing to do is to help that person 
however you can. The right thing to do is to help that person. I return often to that idea, the time is now, the most important person is the one in front of me, and what I'm called to do is to help them. And then I love that final piece here. How, how should we show our covenant with our values in the external world? It's a great phrase, isn't it? I return in some ways to a biblical answer. You know that phrase from the Bible, by their fruits they shall know us by our fruits. And I, I think there's a lot, of, a, a lot of reality there. I hope that people can tell an ethical culturist by the way they are in the world, by what they do for justice, by how they treat other people. Part of being a, a, a part of West is that you answer for yourself, but you do it within community. And so... And so that idea of being a kind of community together, that's how we show our covenant with those values. That's how we show that they are real in our lives. And then, on the other side, but still a big question, when it's all boiled down, isn't ethics and morals just a matter of taste? (laughs) Yes, so never mind, everyone go home, right? (laughs) This was a great question, too, because I think it speaks to the idea of kind of the postmodern moral relativism, right, the, which is in many ways the ocean that we swim in, that progressives tend to swim in, that postmodern folks tend to swim in. And, um, and there's been a whole response from, from kind of neo-orthodoxy saying, you know, postmodernism, which would see the cultural differences out there, which would notice that in one culture something that's completely taboo is acceptable in another culture and honor that those cultures have different responses and that that's, that's okay, that's part of the cultural context. Well, there's a whole response that says, essentially, well, then you're, you are saying it's just a matter of taste. You know, it just depends where you are. I think that that cultural context is important, the idea of the cultural assumptions that we carry with us. And it does mean that in one culture something might be right, even as it's not right in another culture. That context is important for us. But I think there there may be something deeper as well. I was asked to review a colleague's as yet unpublished curriculum on evil. It's a great one. It's an adult ed curriculum. And she goes very deep in there. At the very beginning, this is uh, Anya Samler-Michael, who serves a Unitarian Universalist congregation in Virginia. In the very beginning, she talks about why she has written this curriculum, why she studies evil. And she says, moral relativism holds that morality is relative to the norms of one's culture, or perhaps even to the structure of one individual conscience, right? The idea that we are our own best deciders, our own conscience. These moral systems deny the idea that any action or choice can be universally defined as wrong or evil, a word that conveys a universal conclusion, If a moral conclusion is restrained by the moral norms of the society in which it is practiced or the moral norms of the individual that has perpetrated, perpetuated the action, it will always be a transient or impermanent conclusion, so says postmodernism and moral relativism, never absolute or universal, never expressible with a word as big as evil. Liberal religion, she says, has been struggling since the postmodern era to find the ground to take objective, moral, and religious stands. This curriculum is a means by which liberally religious people can explore the idea of evil in our postmodern context 
It hopes to show that it is possible to sense, experience, and define evil, and from there, right and wrong choices. For Anya Samler-Michael, there is an importance to the felt moral sense. Beyond cultural assumptions and cultural contexts, the felt moral sense that a human being can experience. And what I love about the curriculum and what I think, how I think it responds to postmodernism and comes out of postmodernism is that it's an exploration of that sense, right? It's not a curriculum that says, here's how you find good and evil, but it invites people to construct definitions of good and evil, of right and wrong, out of a kind of exploration of the felt sense and experience they have and throughout the world. So from the deep to the perhaps less so, why am I so intrigued by the Donald Trump spectacle? (laughs) The questioner goes on when I find it, and I want to note that this is the questioner's uh, experience when I find it both personally disgusting and sociopolitically damaging. It's interesting, you know, I think the question was about Donald Trump. I think you could substitute any number of names, both political figures and cultural figures. Why do I follow what Kim Kardashian is doing? It's unclear to me. I actually don't really follow what Kim Kardashian's doing. Well, a little bit. You know what? Who is she? (laughs) Oh, good job. There you go. Do whatever Dan's doing. And the first thing I wrote down when I was thinking about this question was um, schadenfreude and then train wreck. You know, can we, can we not, just not look away? But I think that there, there is, there's a really deep question here. I think about it actually in a more meaningful way when I consider the Westboro Baptist Church. You know, that's the small group, uh, organized as a church. I, I like Baptists and churches and maybe the town of Westboro too much to say that that's an accurate name, but, um, but who, who go and picket, you know, veterans funerals and, and, um, you know, all sorts of things all over the country because, um, because of their homophobic stance. And the struggle with that, I think, is on the one hand, you want to stand against them. And you see that all the time, people making these living walls of, of people kind of blocking, protecting the funeral. Or um, I was, uh, with the staff of Wes, actually, part of one of those living walls when marriage equality was passed in D.C. And we just sang louder, <laughs> you know. Um, but at the same, and, and, and they get all this press. And at the same time, you think, well, if we just stopped looking at them... <laughs> You know, if we just stopped paying any attention, maybe they would go away. And so there's some question there about kind of what the culture asks us and invites us to do and how we respond and engage with the culture. You know, do we, Trump is right now, I think, the front runner in the GOP presidential nomination. I, I think it's unlikely he'll continue to be the front runner for that long. It's very early. But, um, but how do, we, how do we engage with sort of um, what becomes spectacle politics, you know? Um, and and I, I, I'm not sure I know the answer to the why, but I do think we, we have a choice. I think that it can be a real practice to shut it off, to turn off the television, turn the page when you read about Kim Kardashian, you know, to say... I'm actually not going to give this my time and attention until it becomes worthy of that time and attention. 
On the other end of the spectrum, there was a great question, what do you think of Pope Francis and his moral stance on climate change? Kind of the the opposite of spectacle politics in some ways. As you may or may not know, Pope Francis has created a recent papal encyclical about climate change. That's a kind of long, well-researched piece. And, um, and, you know, I say this with a caution. I think progressives have gotten very excited about Pope Francis. Every day my Facebook feed has another thing about how uh, some wonderful thing that he said. And he has said wonderful things. And I, and I will answer this question, although the short answer is, I love it. It's great. <laughs> you know, I want to caution us that Pope Francis is not, as some of us have claimed, perhaps myself, an ethical culturist. His, um, his views on LGBTQ issues, particularly on gender identity and um, on uh, um, adoptive parenting within the LGBTQ community are um, not what we would call progressive. They're quite damaging, actually. And so I just want to note that, you know, as we get excited. But on climate change, boy, he's pretty great. And I will say the thing that I particularly like about his stance on climate change is that he bases it in the concept of preferential treatment for the poor, which is a concept within liberation theology. Pope Francis is not technically a liberation theologian, but he came up out of that and within that kind of milieu, so he certainly is familiar with it. It's a key part of Catholic theology in some parts of the world. And, um, and so, so he bases his climate change work Um, both on the importance of our connection with the environment and being part of that environment, but also and primarily on the idea that those who will be most affected by climate change and by the degradation of the environment are those who are most disenfranchised, most marginalized within our society, the poorest in the world. And, And for me, that's exciting because that's the part that tends to resonate for me. You know, I I care deeply about nature and the environment, But just personally, it's telling me about the millions of people that will die because of the drought that tends to to pull me more toward action. And so so that's what I would say about Pope Francis. I I appreciate that aspect of his theology around climate change, his human-centeredness as he looks at that. Another Catholic question. My mom, this person writes, is a practicing Catholic She wants to take my kids to Mass with her when we visit on Sunday mornings. I know many of us have experiences like this. You can sub in the religious tradition. I'm not comfortable with my kids attending Mass. How do I respectfully tell my mom that religion that offers a hell isn't something I want my kids exposed to without her being offended? Now, I will say one cannot control another person's sense of outrage and defense, right? That's one important part of kind of emotional health. We can only control our own reactions, and even then, sometimes we feel them, and then we can reflect on them more than control them, but we certainly can't control another's. But I, I thought of two things answering this. One was in talking with a, with a family member of whatever kind or a friend who has a religion that, that we don't want our children to be engaged with. I think about, about switching the script a little bit to focus on the positive. Rather than saying, I don't want her to go to Mass because I don't want her exposed to a religion understanding with, a, with an understanding of hell, could we say, you know, we're ethical culturists, we really, um, we're really working to make sure she understands those values. And at this time, while she or he is young, 
I want my child to be focused on those values, to, 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 to focus on the yes you are saying instead of the no um, to, the, to the parent's um, religious upbringing. The other thing I would say is I, I do think it changes as children age what, how they can engage with family and friends' religious backgrounds. And I think as they get old enough, you know, we actually, of course, have a curriculum for our sixth graders where they visit many different traditions and then have conversations about how they relate to ethical culture, how they're different, how they're the same, what we share in common. And so as a child gets older, I think engaging actually with then lots of conversation at home, can be a wonderful part of a child's education. Our family systems theory would stress the importance of our children knowing our family and our family's stories. Um, Ed Friedman said, you don't have to like your family, but you have to know them. And that's a part of knowing, you know, to know even the things that we then can come back and say in our family, that's not how we approach the world. But I think, I think, you know, with, with many of those things where you have to say no to someone, can you, can you articulate what the yes is and help them hear the yes? The yes is the focus on ethical culture and making that the central part of the child's life at this time. This was a, we have, there are so many good, juicy questions. How do we balance our desire to love and accept our bodies as they are with the drive to improve them? What if our bodies don't match the vision that we have of ourselves? This made me think of some of our themes that we did this year, themes of imperfection and also beauty. And I think there's, there's such a spiritual practice of um, figuring out the balance between uh, seeking to improve ourselves, whether it's our bodies, our minds, our kind of emotional centers, and at the same time, accepting and honoring and loving who we are in this moment. And the practical piece that I have found helpful is to imagine that my body is a child, a whole separate being. Now, you have to sort of suspend, like, I don't really believe in the duality of mind and body. You know, that's not really so much an ethical culture thing. We're all one. It's one one thing. But just imagine that your body is a child, that you might think about how you would nourish a child? What food and what movement would you offer to a child? What fun would you give to a child? And then how would you love that child? You know, as a parent, there are certainly times I hope deeply my children will grow and change and develop and be different than they are right now. Please tell me that that will happen. And at the same time, my job is to love them for who they are in this minute, just like that. That, I think, is the call that we have to any part of ourselves, that which might be any part of ourselves, that we both love and wish were different. How can we treat it as we would try to treat our child? Okay, I'll just take a breath. I think we're about halfway through the questions. Ready? Whew. <sighs> okay. This is a big one, too. How do you manage the emotional conflict between gaining awareness and understanding of system-wide or society-wide problems while being an individual with only a limited ability to enact change in your own small corner of the world? 
this, uh, this questioner is actually bringing up two, Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, uh, believed in the idea of three spiritual pains. He thought that religion was kind of created because of these three sort of universal spiritual pains that we experience in the world. And this question essentially hits one and two and combines them. The first is the idea of our insignificance in the world and in the universe. That's the first spiritual pain. And then the second is the idea of um, being of seeing suffering that we cannot alleviate. And I think particularly now we are able to literally see images of so much suffering in the world, many more images and awareness than we have had in the past, that we are or feel unable to alleviate. And so I find that this, I mean, I think, you know, Adler was right then, (laughs) he would be right now. The awareness of that differential the awareness of the systemic problems and of our own always somewhat limited ability to do something about it is a painful one. It's also, I think, or can be, a deeply moving one. So to imagine ourselves connected as we are with people all around the world to really see that the pain in that comes because of the reality of that connection, the reality of that oneness, that we are indeed intricately and inexorably tied with each other and with the world. There's a beauty there. I return, as you can imagine, to that Tolstoy concept. You know, the idea that the time is now, the most important person is the one in front of you, and the best thing we can do is to help that person because I think in the end, it's the only way to actually, uh, you know, move forward. We don't want to just lie on our couch full of pain because of the system that we are inexorably tied to and cannot ultimately change with our own person. Instead, we can make choices each day that shift the system a tiny, tiny bit and know that we're adding to that story and that it takes many more of us, not just one and to see the beauty in that. So here's a related question, although much more specific. I really love going on cruises. I've actually never been on a cruise. I really um, have kind of a fear of uh, throwing up. I hate it. I hate having other people throw up. I mean, nobody likes it, I guess, but... um, And so Peter and I have decided that I would spend the entire cruise worried that I would get seasick. And that would not be fun for anyone. So I didn't write this question. But, but someone really loves going on cruises. And I hear they're awesome. But they're so bad for the environment. Does this mean I should give up on cruises to approach my vacations more ethically? I don't, don't really have a specific answer for this. But I loved the question. To me, this is the heart of what people at West wonder about. You know, it is the specificity of how do I live my life in a way that adds to the story of human dignity and the story of interconnection and the story of environmental, uh, you know, growth and non-degradation. How do I live my everyday life in a way that adds to that story? And I love that people at West ask questions about whether or not they should take cruises because it's important to them. 
And yet it's also important that we have things we love in the world, right? It's important that we are joyful. You know that great E.B. White quote, something like, I wake up each morning torn between the desire to savor the world and save it. It makes it hard to plan my day. You know that one. You know, the sort of practical answers that I have have to do with buying carbon offsets, which is always an option. Um, But I think the more important thing is in the struggle, is in the questioning, that that we are alert to those kinds of questions. Flying is another one. I have a colleague who doesn't fly anywhere if she could drive there in two days or less. Two days is a long time of driving, you guys. (laughs) Like, you could get there much faster in a plane. (laughs) But that's the decision she's made so that she feels right with her environmental choices around transportation. I can't make that decision in my life right now. Adding two days on either end of trips would take me away from my young family in a way that would be unsustainable for my husband. I wouldn't really say me, actually, but for my husband. (laughs) Yep. Um, but, But struggling with those questions and knowing that our answers may change over time as our lives change, as our awareness increases, and that part of the beauty is it really is, I think, in, in the struggle. I had a question totally related to that. How can members of West contribute more as individuals, families, and West members to combating climate change? So maybe the answer is they can all give up going on cruises. But I, I, think, I think the answer... So, you know, I, I, I do think that that continued struggle, the continued thoughtfulness and awareness, having an awareness ourselves of the choices that we make, of which cruises may be the smallest environmental degradation and only the one that pops to mind. There may be many more we engage in every day. I think for me, climate change, it seems... Um, requires ultimately national and really international responses. And so, although I think our personal decisions matter, I think they matter partly because they increase our commitment to working on some of the policy changes nationally and internationally as well. And so that, for me, would be one of the answers that really putting our work toward those broad policy changes is a way to push the dial forward or bring it back. And then I think there's, there's a, a kind of spiritual answer in there. I'm reading right now um, Flight Behavior by Barbara Kingsolver. I'm halfway through the novel. Some of you might have read it. It's about a, a woman who discovers thousands and thousands of butterflies, I mean tens of thousands of butterflies, all of the monarch butterflies in the world, it turns out, in her backyard. Um, and um, their flight pattern has been disrupted from where they usually winter in Mexico to um, this place in, in Appalachia where she lives. And, um, and I don't know how it turns out, so don't tell me, and I'm very worried about the butterflies. Um, but, but what's most telling to me about the book is that what this woman is struggling with as she learns for the very first time, essentially, about climate change, that was not something that was part of her awareness, and she's now working with the scientists and learning Uh, more and more each day, is that she is struggling with hope so much. She's struggling with how to live with an awareness that 
things have already changed dramatically in a way that won't be turned back, and what will come next. And part, I think, of a community like ours is... um, is being holders of possibility with each other, holders of hope or of imagining a different future together. I don't know which is appropriate yet, whether there's room for hope or simply room for imagining a different future because climate change has already destroyed things so dramatically. But I know we will need communities like this one either way to help to figure out a way forward. Okay, we're getting, we're getting close. How are we doing? Everybody hanging in with me? There aren't these good questions. You guys are so thoughtful. Okay, this was a really big one. How can we as a congregation, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add because I know that this writer meant as a majority white congregation, right? That's, that's how I would describe us. Um, actually be welcoming to different demographics without tokenizing or exotifying people in underrepresented groups, so groups that are underrepresented in our community. You could put plenty of different groups within that. You know, there are plenty of groups who are underrepresented here. We have a lot of diversity and a, a lot of homogeneity as well in our community, like in many communities. And I think it's a, it is a challenge, you know, it's a challenge for a majority white congregation. I've thought of this mostly from an from a anti-racist and multicultural lens, so I'll, I'll answer it from that perspective. It's a challenge for a majority white congregation that wants to become more diverse, more multicultural, more multi-ethnic. It's a challenge to do so in a way that, um, that as, as the questioner asks, that doesn't sort of broadcast a message of either um, um, excited desperation, <laughs> which is not exactly the same as a normal welcome, <laughs> right? Um, or, um, uh, well, no, I would say excited desperation is really one of the key, one of the key challenges. Or, um, or assumptions that, that, are, that are incorrect and that come from a place of um, personal prejudice, bias, or just um, lack of information, right? Um, I think that there are, tra- there are trainings. I'm actually uh, right now trying to find a training for our welcome team and our ushers specifically around this. And a lot of what those trainings look at is, is letting go of assumptions. So we, um, w- we've done some work on this with our welcome team, particularly around family structure. When two people walk in the door, what assumptions do you make about how they are connected to each other? You know, if it's a man and a woman or two women or there's a family with three adults and a child, what assumptions do you make about how they're connected? The, the tip there is no assumptions, right? The tip is to, to welcome people with a sense of curiosity, quietly, not excitedly desperate curiosity, just, um, and, and to take a breath, to take a breath before the assumption and the question and the, and the excitedly desperate welcome to just take a breath. I saw an article the other day um, about how meditation actually reduces bias. They studied children who engage in meditation, and it reduces personal bias around uh, race and a variety of other um, kind of demographics and pl- where places that we hold bias because of the way that society is structured and the messages that we receive. And so I think there's something about taking a breath regularly... <laughs> that can change our, um, our jumping in with assumptions and with bias and prejudice. But I think it can work just in the moment, too. Take a breath. 
Imagine how you might welcome anyone who walked in the door, assume nothing, and say hello. Conservatives are critical of liberals erecting barriers to free speech. Hate speech, hurtful words need breaks, but free speech has nuances and the, um, has many nuances. For instance, the protestation that I hate what you say, but I defend your right to say it, that kind of 20th century free speech ideal. So this questioner wanted to know, what are the ethical standards and approaches to free speech in this context? This was a big question. It definitely won't be answered in 90 seconds. But I just wanted to articulate that the difference between free speech and hate speech, technically, legally, is that hate speech is speech that is designed to or that incites violence against an individual or a group of people in a protected, a protected individual or a protected group, which is most demographic groups are protected, right? So, so I think that's important. There is a significant and clear difference you can articulate between free speech, no, which one was free speech? Free speech and hate speech. Um, now, of course, someone might say, well, I didn't mean to incite violence. They misunderstood me. You know, that's where it starts to get tricky. And then the other thing that I often see is kind of a confusion about free speech and the consequences of free speech. So we saw this with the, um, the Chick-fil-A thing that happened a couple of years ago. Do you remember that? Chick-fil-A's uh, owner came out uh, really very uh, broadly against LGBTQ rights um, and, uh, and, and, um, and not hate speech, not inciting violence, but, but a very clear stance there. And, um, and so then people stopped, I stopped going to Chick-fil-A. Um, my daughter told her grandmother that she couldn't go to Chick-fil-A anymore when she tried to take her to the mall. <laughs> I hope that was a good conversation. I don't know. Um, but she knew why. <laughs> she could tell her grandma why. Um, you know, and, and, and a lot of response then would say, well, but they, but they have every right to say that. Well, that's true. Absolutely. They, they have every right to say that. And, and then they might face consequences in the market. You know, people have every right then to choose to stop shopping there. That's okay, too. So I think that's just a key piece to think, keep in mind around free speech as well. And, and at least in the in the spectacle politics, in the public square, it can get, in the, in the Facebook meme public square, it can get confused, right? Well, they have every right to say that, sure. And then I can just not, I didn't really like Chick-fil-A anyway, so fine with me. This was a, a fascinating question to me. What did you notice about your, it's the most personal, what did you notice about your sabbatical affecting the quantity and quality and content of your dreams? Isn't that cool? So, um, so I am lucky to dream a lot. I have a lot of dreams, um, just in general. My dreams are um, of the, it does not take a psychiatrist to figure out what I'm worried about kind of dreams. <laughs> so when I was going before the Ministerial Fellowship Committee to get my certification as a Unitarian Universalist minister, it's a, it's a group of like eight people in a semicircle, and, and you sit and they ask you questions for an hour and a half, and then they pass judgment about whether you can move forward. And so um, leading up to that, the dreams I had were of me going before a semicircle of eight people <laughs> where they would ask, I mean, that literally I dream about precisely the thing that I'm worried about. 
um, since I stopped writing my manuscripts um, for platforms, I don't dream anymore that I've forgotten my manuscript because I know now it would be okay. Instead, what I dream is that none of you are listening to me and I can't get you to stop talking. (laughs) Which is actually totally a reality, (laughs) like a realistic possibility. So I had fewer anxiety dreams about Sunday during sabbatical, particularly as we got, you know, toward the middle of sabbatical. And then they picked right up (laughs) as I got close to August 2nd. It was amazing to me um, that, that, you know, they started, uh, you know, uh, coming back again as as I got closer. The other thing that I noticed on sabbatical, you know, one of the things that that sabbatical is intended for is to give clergy a break from the holding of people in their hearts so much. I walk around all the time wondering what's going on with this person who I know is struggling with that and how how people are doing, and I try to remember to send emails to check in, and then when I see them to remember and ask. And so I had a release from that in my waking hours during sabbatical, which was lovely, but you guys showed up in my dreams. I didn't worry about you in my dreams. You just were there a lot. Kind of, you know, like at the coffee shop or something along those lines. So, so that was interesting, the way that my psyche held on, I think, even during that break. Okay. Oh my gosh, two more. We're so close. My almost nine-year-old is having existential issues. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Why do we die? He doesn't believe in an afterlife, so the idea of that is no comfort to him. Saying the meaning of life is what you make it, an excellent existentialist response, has fallen short as an answer. I hear this kind of question regularly from folks, and particularly from some of our Sunday school parents whose children struggle with death, with what death means and how to respond to death, how to feel about it. I think we as a society are still really oriented toward a more traditional religious framework, even those of us that have chose something different for ourselves and for our families. And so we, we have this ingrained desire, I think, to answer the questions, you know, or almost as though um, part of what our role is as parents is to make sure that they know the answers, you know, that we have a catechism of sorts to tell them, to answer those deep and, and sometimes troubling questions. And so my sort of, I don't know if it's a flip response, although it's a real one, is that, that life, living, growing up, is, is asking those questions. You know, that's part of what we continue to do as adults. And so not to, 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 to give a space for the child to just experience that kind of existential crisis, to be with them, to say, I know it's confusing, isn't it? It's hard. I wonder that sometimes, too, myself. I, I'm, I'm glad we can sit together with those hard questions. Now, I do, I like the, the answer, you know, meaning is what we make of it. Life is what we make of it. I think for, um, for children who are so concrete, I would recommend some, some more specific ways to see that meaning is what we make of it kind of answer. Um, so I might talk about doing gratitude lists with the child. Works for adults too, just FYI. Um, sharing gratitude around the dinner table. What are you grateful for today? What are you glad exists in the world? 
Writing lists of things that make us happy or joyful, that we found meaningful, or using a different phrase as we get with younger children. So that what's, what's important is the experience of making meaning, not just the philosophical idea of existentialism, right? Which is, you know, maybe not as comforting. Well, we're existentialists, so, you know, good luck. Um, <laughs> I think, too, that, um, that looking at ancestry is important here. That idea of telling the family stories, telling stories of generations that came before, whether literal ancestors or ancestors in, in kind of, in spirit ancestors, in career ancestors, in um, breaking down barriers, and being able to think with a child about what might come after, so that they can begin to see themselves in that arc of the human story over time. For me, that's what gives a lot of meaning to life, seeing myself as part of what these folks did and continuing it forward and not even knowing what will come after I die, but trusting that there will be good-hearted people trying to make it happen. And finally, how do you answer the question, what's your religion, posed by someone that doesn't know you well or your career? So because I live in Washington, D.C., people always ask me about my career before they ask me about my religion. I've never had it in the opposite direction. <laughs> I often think one of the nice things here is that it's, that's not so frequent a question. I regularly find out years after knowing someone what their career is. I'm much more interested in what their passion is or who they are as a person. But um, but I do have an answer that I give to folks, and so I'll leave you with that. I, I'm regularly called on to explain what ethical culture is to folks who don't know anything about it, either people who are in other more traditional religious settings or, you know, just someone who may be connected to no particular religious tradition. And so here's the way I would say it. I say, um, you know, it's a humanistic congregation, Humanist congregation is now getting to be a little bit more of a familiar word, thanks to uh, Greg Epstein and some of the folks at Harvard. It's a humanist congregation. It's a religion based on the idea that ethics are at the heart of all religious traditions. All religious traditions tell us something about how to behave in the world. And so we're a community of people from lots of different backgrounds and lots of different beliefs. And what we come together around as a community on Sunday morning is that question of how to behave. We talk with each other about how we want to be in the world, how we want to be with each other, and what justice we seek to create. That's the community that I lead. Thank you.